0: Englishman in San Diego at the International Comics Expo Margate 2018. Hi there, Cy. Hello. How the devil are you? Very, very good. Tired Uh, now. I was good. good. I mean, usually I'd turn around and say my first question is... How is Margate treating you? Oh. But seeing as you bloody live here... Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah,
1: uh, it's, it's great to have a little show on my doorstep now, isn't it? And it's, I mean, um, for the benefit of the listener, we are sitting on a balcony that we probably shouldn't be on, looking down upon a... Is that velvet? Sort of red velvet yeah. idyll. <laughs> uh, like somebody sort of opened a time warp back to the sort of 60s or 70s. It's kind of an amazing venue, is my point. It's um, very
0: epic and grand.
1: Yes, yeah, where's the theatre? Which,
0: in lovely segue yeah, <laughs> are you really ready, really bring it lovely and grand, really Come on so bring lovely it. and grand, like labels that you could definitely put onto your work. Oh, stuff. Because they are very big, very epic, um, and um, fantastic world building, right. which is very much a consistent part of what you uh, bring to your comics. Um, I want to talk about two titles in particular. I want to talk about Angelic, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about Motherland. Yep. Uh, one, because my favourite comic oh, in the last thank 12 months. You. It's just a gorgeous piece of work. And number two, because there's some real potential for that book and also for its artists. Sure. So I'm going to yeah, yeah. come back to Rachel in a second. So we'll talk with about Angelic. Yep. We were talking earlier downstairs about how I felt it's the ultimate mirror for the reader. Mm-hmm. While you can come at it straight as an all-ages book, as a pick-it-up, so like anyone you know, who's not really looking into any further subtext will just get into the yep. story and really enjoy it. But then you can take all the subtext. Like I say, it's, it's a mirror rather than just a straightforward yep. reactionary thing. Was that intentional from the start? Oh, very
1: much so. And uh, we took our inspiration from uh, sort of Pixar movies predominantly. So I'm thinking of things like wall um, where And also, to an extent, Miyazaki films. I think a lot of animation has this this wonderful quality where, because it feels iconized, I guess, <laughs> if that's even a word, you know, it's this, this idea that you're, you're not seeing something that is trying to pass itself off as real life. It's clearly the work of an artist. It, it, for some reason, makes it far more accessible and, again, in inverted commas, friendly to the child. Um, I think the same is true in comics. The um, child is always going to be a little more attracted to something colorful Mm -hmm. that's pretty simple um it's not always the case but i think it's it's a pretty decent generalization but if not just kids no you're right you're (laughs) you're right actually you're not wrong at all um and so when it comes to things like animals i mean i I read a paper about this uh, nine times out of ten given the option of picking up a picture book about people or a picture book about things that aren't people kids will tend to go for things that aren't people yeah because it's I don't know it's it's simpler it's less complicated it's more escapist it could be any number of things but for whatever reason the the specific blend of ingredients that we found ourselves playing with in Angelic we knew before we even started that it was going to be an easy sell to the young reader and so the trick was as with those amazing Pixar movies to say all right well let's make sure there's something in here for the adult reader too and then you start thinking, well, maybe if we can do both of those things at the same time, then you you actually discover this sort of unexpected value, and it's a little subversive, and I, I make no apology for that. But
0: if if a well, that seems to be a thread in, in a lot of your work.
1: Well, yeah, but I think as long as you as long as you're prepared to stand by the thing you're trying to <laughs> trying to yeah, or, or even you know, there's there's all ideas are infectious, and if I'm sure that my idea is a right idea, then why would I feel bad about infecting people with it? For instance, my perfect scenario with Angelic, and I I know this has happened a couple of times, so I'm I'm happy, is that a, let us say, for the sake of argument, a 12-year-old girl picks up Angelic because it looks shiny and wonderful and she loves cute animals with wings, and then by the end of it has enjoyed it and perhaps not entirely realized that she's read a parable, but now understands that there is something important about being a female on the cusp of adulthood in as much as there's a lot going on in our world today that is going to try and rob you of your choices in life. And you have to resist that as much as possible and rely on the people around you to help you resist that as much as possible. And that's Cora's story. You know, From the beginning in Angelic, Cora's story is an adventure. It's a monkey with wings who doesn't like the way her life is going at home and decides to go on an adventure. But, as you say, when you look at it with a second pair of eyes, with a slightly more grown-up pair of eyes, she's about to undergo a pretty horrific ritual in which she is married off to somebody pretty awful, and in the process of so doing, her wings get clicked. She can't fly anymore. And to the, the young reader, oh, that's awful. Everybody should have wings. They should be allowed to fly. Get it. Brilliant. Move on. Read it. Enjoy it to the grown-up viewer, okay, it's it's a parable about repressed women in forced marriage scenarios <laughs> yeah. and religious fundamentalism and all the other things that are sort of bubbling away in the story as well. And I have no problem with that being something that the, the little girl who buys it or the mum who bought it for her little girl didn't expect to be in the yeah. story,
0: but by the end of it, they feel like they've been changed. I'm, I'm kind of also brought in, because uh, I, I see a, a little bit of a Venn diagram uh-huh. when it comes to some books that are out there at the moment. Uh, certainly um, with uh, Princeless, uh, bringing that kind of an action excitement there, but there's some real parable lessons there sure. for um, for young women. And also with a book which name now completely escapes me and this is just going to be so embarrassing uh, so I might even just cut this bit out <laughs> <That's> <laughs> fine I? With um, context it's, no it's the um, there it's, you go Margaret Bennett uh, for Aftershock yes it's called the book we're embarrassingly forgetting to remember the title of is Animosity yeah. um, so there's there's a, a number of books out there at the moment that are doing this kind of thing that are really working on multiple levels yeah. which is exciting in itself considering that at the moment though we are in very much in a, a period of comics which is almost combative between um, there's a line being drawn between the readership and almost either creators and the, the, um, the companies themselves there are some books the ones that I've mentioned which almost are kind of tipping a shoulder towards all that is that intentional?
1: No, I don't huh? think it will. I, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a sort of... Uh, uh, You're an easygoing guy. Well, yeah, in, <laughs> in the real world, but they sit me in front of a keyboard and I'm just mischievous. If somebody says you can't do that, I want to do it. And, and with, hence this whole stuff about, you know, trying to trying to subvert norms, everything I do, the, the new uh, fantasy book I'm doing, Coda, is, is all about starting from a position of, here's how somebody else would have written this story, let's put a bullet in that and start from yeah. scratch. And that's kind okay. of what I do and, and um, I don't feel as though it's worth taking sides I feel like it's worth doing the most valuable version of something you believe you can and if people want to use it to help choose which side they're on
0: more fair power them. fair enough it's gone to Image um, which is always a great supporter of new ideas and new, uh, fresh uh, stories Yes. Um, but they're also really good supporters of then going on further if the story has commercial merit, as yep. they understand. How's Angelic done, and can we see a volume two on <laughs> I mean, there will be a volume two. There will eventually. be.
1: Eventually. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to say it's going to be tomorrow. It's, yeah, the, the, the reality, which is something not many creators are comfortable talking about, because it, it sort of it feels like one of those secrets you're not supposed to impart. Here's how we make the sausage. <laughs> yeah, right? But unless you sell, unless you're one of the top ten image books, not yeah. even the top ten, probably the top five. This is not a life-changing thing. It may well change your life because you've just sweated blood over it, but <laughs> it's,
0: it's not going to let you buy a yacht. Now that's when The Walking Dead money comes in. Sure, sure. And obviously looking at um, multimedia and the film rights yeah, and Yeah,
1: that's, that's where it
0: starts to change. Yeah, the one thing I've always found interesting about your books is it always seems that they are books for the end products. They are being produced because comic art and the comic medium is a very def- defined thing yeah. um, obviously it can leapfrog onto t- TV films sure. or whatever, but I really respect those creators that well, respect you think the, if the, the industry. If, if, if you the
1: only reason you're making a comic is because you think it would make a great TV show or a movie, then mm. you might as well just go and make a great TV, TV show yeah. or a movie okay. if, you're, if you're making a great comic it should be because it needs to be told in comic form and then you put your faith in clever people to adapt it in a way that makes the best use of the, the secondary media that they then decide to adapt into. I know a lot of it's funny there's, it's sort of gone in the wrong direction I, I hate to go back to money but given how not much of that there is in comics and how much of it there is in TV and movie it blows my mind how many people are coming from movies and, TV and going back in the other the direction. direction Yeah. And, and I suspect it's entirely and this is a horribly uncharitable way of putting it but I think it's because hey guys I've got this one great idea I've been sitting on it for ten years I don't seem to be able to get it made into this TV show that's going to make me a billionaire so I'll make it into a
0: comic first and think, then somebody else. also it- that element as well where they're kind of they being they're, they've got these big ideas and they, we obviously took seen lots of big ideas yeah. coming to the screen but then that costs money uh, with with comics, it's someone who's it's going all to the same. Just, and sure. you can draw, you. But draw also, the biggest budget action sequence. I, I, I do think if you've
1: worked in comics for very long then you know that ideas are, in, are both at one and the same time amazingly valuable and very, very cheap, and if, <laughs> if you're coming from the other direction you've probably got one amazing idea <laughs> and that ain't enough, I'm sorry. So anyway, to, to go back to your question um, Angelic has um, more than earned back the time and effort we've put into it, which is great That's not the same as saying that the same amount of time spent on a big two work for hire book wouldn't be better in terms of remuneration. So um, this is always a a far bigger problem for artists than it is for writers, because if if by some awful set of circumstances, a creator-owned book that I had been involved with fell to the earth, didn't earn a single penny, I'm out what, if it's a six-issue arc, probably six weeks of work. Yeah. If the artist has probably done, what, a month per issue, have six months without earning a penny. Mm. So it's a, it's a far bigger problem for an artist, which is the long-winded way of saying that both Casper and I are very busy at the
0: moment well, with, that with good, things that will we'll pay our mortgage. That was going to be the next thing. Because producing the... I mean, th- this book came out, and at first I was surprised purely because it is a creator-owned yep. project, but you've got a lot on your plate yeah. already. And yeah, then yeah. to take time out uh, to produce this book, um, obviously it was a story you felt you wanted to tell, you needed to tell, but how do you find time then to balance between the, the stuff that pays the mortgage and the stuff that, um, that you I, feel again, creates... It is the, the, the,
1: the privilege of the writer is such <laughs> that I can be working on I mean, I'm at my my most comfortable when I'm doing three books at once, because then I've got roughly a week off each month to be doing other stuff. You know, thinking of new ideas, plotting new things, pitching TV stuff, thinking about movie
0: stuff, whatever it may be. How many projects have you got kind of bubbling under? I'm just curious. About five
1: at the moment, (laughs) and... and, I've just finished one and thought, great. The moving
0: house, dude.
1: Yeah, it's it's moved, <laughs> but I mean, we're on the
0: cusp of having a baby, I mean, they and sit so go around and say, was well, it moving houses one of the most stressful things yeah, you can do in your yeah, life?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is probably it's it's, it's, it's allowing you some time away to kind of. It's pretty bad step time back.
1: on my part, and I and I am managing it. I'm, I've usually, and I can say this with with pride, I'm usually extremely good at managing my schedule, and it's um, either bad luck or good luck, depending on how you see it. That. I received four can't-say-no <laughs> offers all at the same time. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm managing it so that uh, it's not going to keep... Streaming. So I didn't want
0: to put a spotlight no, on the No, 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 no. I mean, this is, all, <laughs> this is all sort of...
1: It's great stuff that, that you know, people who are uh, comic book readers and fans never really hear. And, and, and frankly, one feels quite shabby complaining about having too much work because yeah. as creators we've all had spells when there isn't nearly enough of it and I have this conversation with my, my friends quite regularly. It's like if 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 you're miserable because you're not working or you're miserable because you're working, in one of those two situations at least you're being paid to be miserable. <laughs> so, you know, it's clearly the better of the two. But I, I I shit ye not when I say I'm tearing my hair out some weeks, but it's there are lights at the end of the horizon. Yes, and I, it's called a baby. Yes, yeah, no, that's that's a, a, another the, one. The <laughs> tunnel's on fire. You know? <laughs> um, I love all the jobs I'm doing. Oh yeah, congratulations. Thank you yes, very thank much you. indeed. That's really uh, shaking. Uh, thank you very much. The the books I am working on are, as I say, they're things I couldn't say no to, and I inherited them all off the back of angelic already having started so well let's yeah.
0: go to then to that other project which i want to bring yep. up because it's an exciting project for a couple of reasons uh, number one obviously because um dc vertigo yep it's almost kind of like resurgence number three i want to count yes. <laughs> at this at point least, yeah. it's, uh, trying to keep you know we're putting cpr on vertigo while the blood's still spurting out the sides and whatever but it the great thing about it is that we are keeping the monster alive, and it's, it's still very vom- it's, it's great. And obviously,
1: virtual. as a loyal Vertigo <laughs> lover, I don't I don't put it in quite such a terms. Okay, I was being a fence, bit but, brutal. But yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean I know that that is one reading of it. I, what I would say is that there has been no diminishing in the quality of not at all of the brand since the heydays. It's just that there's a lot so more why material. why has DC really struggled to kind of support it? Then? Well, I think uh, quite... Well, there's, that's not quite the question I'm going to answer. The question I'm going to answer is why is it not the, the powerhouse it once was in terms of brand visibility? And I think the short answer is because image is. Mm. And it's that simple. Suddenly, Vertigo is not the only place where people go to, to create their own uh, mature content. It used to be, and I would, being a little bit... Uh, equivocal about the whole thing, I would say that one of the reasons I think that Vertigo is still a very dynamic brand is that people still go there to do amazing creator-owned mature content, but they also get edited, which is <laughs> something that isn't always the case with, with standalone creator-owned who work.
0: Who came to who with Motherland? Uh,
1: they came to me um, and asked me if I had... Well, that's, that's half true. I have been for the sake of love and nostalgia, desperate to work with Vertigo since I started writing comics. Um, and have over the years, not, not with great tenacity, but now and then I have pitched them ideas. And it's always been one of those almost but not quite things. And in fact, there was a whole period when, um, I think three times in one year, I was convinced that we had been given a green light and the words green light were used only for their then policy, which was um, it can't go to green light unless the media people say that it has adaptation potential to come back and say, well, what do you know? It turns out Spurry has written another bloody unfilmable thing, so we can't give him a media. It's like, yeah, I kind of should have learned my lesson by now. Anyway, that, that is either no longer the case or they think that Motherlands does have media potential. I honestly don't know, but they, they went for this. I think it strategically sits in... and th- I'm making this up, by the way. I don't know this for sure. I'm making assumptions. Uh, the the grand um, resurrection, which is happening later this year, which I'm part of as well, this whole Sandman stuff, which is super exciting. I think that they knew that that was coming. That's been on the cards for a couple of years. It just sort of wasn't, wasn't entirely sure when it was going to happen. So I think in their mind, Motherlands is a sort of... Um, Spurrier has a track record of doing uh, completely out there mini-series. I, I mean, I love writing mini-series. I think sure, that as, I've said this a many times, but I think all stories should have an ending. And so if you say to me, hey, do you want to do an ongoing story? Well, yeah, but can I do it as a series of minis? Because that makes a lot more sense to me. It means that you, you get to tell modular stories. So they said, this is clearly a mini-series. Uh, you will understand why that is the case when you've finished reading it, because there is... Perhaps the greatest twist in modern comics coming down the pipe. That's Uh, a modest thing. Right, right. I know. Um, So there's a there's a reason that it's six issues in and out. Among those secondary reasons is that, having now finished writing Motherlands, I am moving directly on to writing the Sandman stuff. Okay. So it should be uh, one coming out directly after the others finished. I think. I was
0: going to touch on Sandman at the end, and Uh we will come back to that. Sure. Okay. What is it about Rachel Scott that makes this book as exciting as it is? I mean, is? She's, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah. she's... I've been, I think I've been banging this particular drum for a while now. Yep. Um, basically along the lines of, why is she not a comics rock god yeah. at this point? Because uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's almost inevitable. I think it probably is. I think that you would
1: have to ask her, obviously, but I think one of the answers to that question is that she loves the things she's worked on mm. up to now. She's a massive Doctor Who nut. And so if it's like, well, hey, you can, you can go and draw Johnny Spandex Pants, who you've never heard of, <laughs> or you can draw the, the 12th Doctor or whatever, the 14th or wherever we're up to now, she's going to say that. That said, she knows because she's smart that her style lends itself amazingly well to mainstream western comics. With, with absolutely no word of, of um, condescension, one of the reasons I wanted to do Motherlands was because I knew it would be a way of Rachel appearing on the
0: decent people's radar and she has. Well, I f- found with her I mean obviously what she's been doing up to now is characterizations of existing characters yep Um, is this her first original piece I'm trying to work out that's a very good question maybe so I'm trying to work out well not work out because obviously she's an incredible artist but um, so like what it was to kind of then bring her into producing and designing and creating a completely original world I mean uh, I think uh that's a really good question. I hadn't really considered
1: it. You're, you're right; she has most of her work up to now has been based around either likenesses from from TV or movies or from existing characters. That said, I mean, you've only got. I, to, I, I
0: thought that question might have come up at DC, You're saying, can she come... Well, I think can, I mean, the I mean all, they they had seen <laughs> no, she can.
1: They had seen all of her Doctor Who work and, <laughs> sure. and the Doctor Who comics. It's obviously chock full of concepts that don't come directly from the TV show, and and there's a whole bunch of stuff that she sent through in particular which really felt quite motherland <laughs> Um How long has this been in um, so like well, gestation? It came together pretty quickly, actually. and I, I think because Vertigo is clearly seeing this, you know, this is sort of the last one through the door before it's all changed, it was a bit of a, a, a sort of unforgiving schedule all around, which is why really? you know, So Rachel came into it while she was still uh, servicing a few other commitments, which is why there have been a few stand-in bits and bobs along the way, art-wise. I think that they took one look at the stuff she'd done on Doctor Who. My editor on Motherland's Andy Curry, is already a big fan of Rachel's because he's one of those rare but exceptional editors who makes it their job to actually go out and look at other people's works rather than just waiting for it to drop into their laps. Um, So he was kind of easy to convince, Um, in fact I couldn't even tell you whether I had to convince him or whether he went, hey maybe Rachel would be good for this at the same time as I was going, hey maybe Rachel would be good for this. So she kind of arrived without really needing to audition for the job at all because we both loved her style completely. Uh, and she's just, yeah, she's sort of stepped up. I've never seen her draw anything like the sort of aesthetic or designs that she's been doing in Motherlands, which just goes to show that you can give somebody a job based on one thing and they turn out Man, to be too. able to do another. Yeah, uh, And it's funny, I mean, we, we were both just a, a talk that the designer, the logo designer, Emma Price, was giving. And originally Motherlands was... Uh, intended to be quite sort of shiny and a glitzy Hollywood version of, it's sort of Dog the Bounty Hunter, yeah. with a bit of the, the piss and vinegar taken. That's, um, by the way, the uh, tagline for the whole book. There you go, piss, piss and vinegar <laughs> taken away. <laughs> yeah. But when the logo design started coming in and it was quite glitchy and, and um, uh, sort of clearly blipvert. Right, very good, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I was going to go for um, uh, Max Headroom. Oh, it is, it's Max Headroom, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, is right. Uh, is that where that's from? Uh, fine, okay, good. We're on the same page. Um,
0: <laughs> we and didn't know it.
1: <laughs> having come to that sort of aesthetic as the brand, uh, it was simple enough for Rachel and the colorist to tailor things in that direction. And, and it, of course, feeds into the story, and you end up with a world which feels very lived in. And to go right back to the beginning of this interview, <laughs> you asked me about world building. My one and only. Interest in world building is to create a world that feels functional yep. and then to ignore it. <laughs> I really don't want to tell stories that are about world shaking stakes and I'll be like, okay, I've spent weeks and weeks coming up with this amazing world, now let's tell a story where it's all under threat. It mm-hmm. just feels like an abdication of character responsibilities to me. So, Motherland's a good case in point. Things like God Shaper, Six Gun Gorilla, uh, the Spire, they're all like Blade Runner is the, the obvious one in this. The original Blade Runner is a story that has a functional, fascinating, exotic, mysterious, beautiful world, which the story has really nothing to do. Yeah. You know, obviously the story could only happen in that world with its sci-fi ideas. But you take away the story, and the world doesn't care. The yeah. world just rumbles on,
0: and that's the sort of world I like to build. Motherland is like that. Does that come in um, script, or does that come a little bit later when you do actually start talking with your? Um... It's all in
1: the script, really. And well, yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's the number of times that artists arrive and
1: then the script changes. It's pretty common.
0: Yeah. Because I was I was curious certainly with them um, with with this book with Motherlands because of the design it, because it is very much on a visual um, uh, powering as well because it's dealing with uh, multimedia, it's yep. dealing with the perception, it's dealing with. The, the way that people want to be seen. Yep. So that kind of then is part of the design aesthetic and then it feeds back into the story. Sure. I, was, I was wondering what the conversations were like between yourself and Rachel in that regard.
1: I think it was. Uh, it's all implied in the character yeah. and, and Rachel understood the characters very, very quickly. Um, we both sort of... Motherlands is fantastic for me and I think for Rachel too because both of these women are both understandable to some degree likable and to some degree utterly abhorrent and that's humans but it it struck me that you know you can have a a character who is vivacious and um, passionate who's also utterly obnoxious and self-absorbed and you can have a character who is probably a good person but is full of anger and can't express anything and those can both be fascinating people and the reason that they are both broken is because the other one exists yeah and then you stick them together and see what happens. And frankly, what happens is a lot of fighting, and that's, that's kind of <laughs> comics, you know? That's mothers and daughters yeah, right, right. And that's a relationship I'd never really seen explored. We see so many stories, not just comics, but all over the place, with father-son relationships, and it's usually about meeting the father's expectations or uh, the son coming of age, and you see so many father-daughter relationships where it's all about the little princess and, you know, earning the, the father's respect. But I, I've not seen a, a truly dysfunctional mother-daughter science fiction story, and that's that's what we wanted to do. And if you haven't stuck science fiction, well, that's you know. what <laughs> if you haven't
0: <laughs> stuck science fiction in there, I said, uh, have you not seen the Carrie Fisher documentary? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, you a, uh, Are you ready for me to blow some smoke up your ass? Go on. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah. You have a Bose. You're very uh, literary. <laughs> You're very um, expressionistic. I'm not, you see, this <laughs> way. which makes you an ideal fit for Sandman. Ah, okay, okay? good. That's where that. we're going for. That. All right, we Thank went, you. we went Yeah, all the compliments, all the uh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because obviously, I think what people take away from Sandman is that you could almost take away the art i mean you never want to i know i'm, I'm not, not sure like. I'm starting yeah, yeah, yeah. to bristle <laughs> i know but you it, it's very literary it's a it's yeah. a gorgeously written piece of work and that's obviously something that could become quite intimidating coming into writing Sandman. What, yeah. what was your fir- i mean number one what was your first thought when you um, landed the gig and what was your second thought? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit <laughs> oh shit
1: uh, no, uh, if you, I mean, you're, you're right and you're very kind, uh, just for for what it's worth from my perspective, you take away the art, whoever the artist is, and it, it is not a book anymore. It's, Fair enough, it's, yes. That said, there is a reason it's thought of, and frankly now more recently referred to as Neil Gaiman's Sandman. There you go. Um, And to to touch on that while I'm passing, I know that there was a lot of, not a lot of, there was a little quite legitimate uh, eyebrow arching when the news was made public about this new uh, resurrection of the the Sandman universe. That the announcement revolved around the four writers who had been handpicked by Neil and no mention was made of artists. And all I can say on that is that there's a good reason for that, which is that the artists haven't all been chosen yet. Um, And they, the DC people in their wisdom, didn't want to say, four writers and this artist and this artist. They wanted to save it up to make
0: an announcement about all the artists together. I think also the fact that they're announcing it this early, and it's the kind of story that will continue to run purely off the back of this, this character's back. Sure. Exactly, and, and again, to, to sort
1: of... Uh, it's take, got a lot of legs to it. To take the ball by the horns, Neil's responsibility in terms of getting the job up and running was to select the writers that he would like to write it, and so the story was about that rather than about who was going to be drawing it. I can say, because I now know it's out in the world, that my book, The Dreaming, is going to be drawn by Bilquis Everly, who is, I think, one of the very best artists working in comics, so I'm pretty chuffed about all that. To circle right back to your question, yeah, I mean I come from a background of prose writing, so it's it's no great surprise that somebody as <laughs> sesquipedalian as me would be would be chosen. I, I know. Uh, yeah, I, I like words and I, I like uh, in fact to the it's extent
0: it's a man word. To, to
1: the extent that <laughs> I've actually written a couple of blogs in the past about tell don't show because I, I have issues with the whole show don't tell doctrine. I think it's a good fit. Um, I was not somebody who grew up on Sandman. I was not a sort of... uh, No. I I discovered it much, much later. I was probably in my early twenties when I first read it. It's clearly amazing. It's clearly a work of literary brilliance. Um, It is very, very intimidating to be walking into that world. Uh, All I can say is that all four of us spent an incredible weekend in New Orleans with Neil being given not only advice but also permission and that's you know he's he's generous and calm and solved a few riddles that
0: we'd gone into it really struggling to grapple with were there any perceptions to the the story into the character that you came to that meeting with which you then got told hang on a second you might not have gotten the handle on this
1: I mean, on
0: that element,
1: not ish, and and it's it's worth saying that the dreaming, the, the title I will be writing is at its heart an ensemble piece, so it's a series of characters. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the story? Yeah, sure, uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so the and cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, we're going back to the whole. This won't appear in the final edit. The, the main character is not dream. Dream is a a presence in all these stories. Um, most importantly in The Dreaming, for obvious reasons, um, although perhaps not in the way that you might think. I'm um, being very cryptic, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, inasmuch as there is a main character, it's a new character called Dora, uh, who is... she exists in The Dreaming, and for the, the the listeners who don't know what that is, it is a almost entirely plastic plane State of existence. Of it is, it really is, but in, in, because comics are a visual medium, it exists as a, a manifested world whose master is dream, whose job and preserve is to manage and maintain the subconscious of humanity, the mass mind. It's a place where, in fact, the, the, so we're launching a special before the, the four titles launch. And I've written the majority of it and the first page which introduces you to the dreaming opens with there is a place where gods are born and that's because all things all wonder all myth all mysticism is born in the human psyche in the human imagination and the the dreaming exists as this abstract Manifestation of what it is to be the human subconscious. So we're already in quite difficult territory. When it's this, you know, I, I keep pitching my story as well. It's Deadwood. It's a Wild West town, and to an extent, the uh, the central tenet is that it's a Wild West town whose sheriff is not doing his job. And so, cut to everybody in the town worrying about what the hell is going to happen to the town. And that's the dreaming. But this ain't Deadwood. This ain't a, a clapperboard town built in the middle of the prairie it's literally the human subconscious so yeah intimidating to go back to that Dora is a resident here who doesn't know why she doesn't really know who or what she is Uh, other people clearly know more about her than she herself knows she's our sort of walking talking manifestation of PTSD in the sense that she she has clearly suffered a major break and she doesn't know why and doesn't necessarily want to look at it too closely because it's clearly something awful uh, and she has deep distrust towards all the things in this world and, and readers of the old Sandman comics will remember that the other denizens I was going to say
0: we're seeing there's some touchstones with some of the old stories yeah
1: well there's, there's uh, so Lucy and the librarian that's, that's is the, uh, dreaming yeah so the dream who appears in our story is the second dream this is, he's called Daniel in the yeah. original stories he's now dream but he's uh, a sort of pale pale version of Dream rather Mm -hmm. than the sort of goth black flowing robes, although we get some flashback fun (laughs) with him too. Um, But yes, the other main characters are Lucian, who is the librarian, Uh, Cain and Abel, the old sort of uh, DC storytellers, Uh, Eve, Matthew the Raven, Merv
0: Pumpkinhead. Right, you just named the ones. Yeah, all these these sort of
1: great, beautiful characters who are... And, and by the way, one of the reasons that I created Dora and enjoy writing her is that she, like me, can look at these characters and go, they're all just bloody metaphors. You're all a bunch of bloody metaphors. What are you doing here? And so when they try and tell her stuff, she's like, no, I don't believe I have to listen to you. You're just a myth. You're just, you're just a manifestation of some personified thought or abstraction. So she's quite, she's quite mean about everybody around her. And eventually we'll realize that there's a very good reason for it. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's the story of what happens when a kingdom... It, it's not that they've lost their king, it's that their king is not serving his function as he should do. And literally everything has gone wrong. Um, the walls of the kingdom are splitting. There's it's very th-
0: parallel to then Neil Gaiman's first stories. Because right, when you, you meet dream at that point. He has been taken he's been away. away. He's, been, he's, a, he's a prisoner. So you're, you're discovering him through his rediscovering of his own role. Quite right. And, and is actually, that what we're going to be seeing in this? Ish.
1: It's more like we're going to focus on... So, for instance, the book opens with a sort of reiteration of something that happened at the start of Neil's Sandman run, which is that the dreaming has been left without dream. Now, whereas the original Sandman starts with Uh, dream having to figure out how to get back. In this case, and it's not quite true to say it's been left without him, it's more complicated than that, but I'm not going to go there. (laughs) In this case it's more about the characters who are left there going holy crap, this has happened before it didn't end well and this time there's a lot of other extremely frightening stuff that's different um, which I can't talk about, but which is, is sort of massive. Uh... What are we going to do? And um, they kind of rattle through all the obvious um, and then increasingly unobvious responses to that, including pretending everything's all right, (laughs) panicking when it's clear that everything's not all right. Um, And in the midst of it all- This sounds
0: like the dreaming I
1: remember. Right, and in the midst of it all, Dora are are sort of not quite central characters. I'd say it sounds like she's an avatar for us. Well, she's very much an avatar for me because she's, oh, okay. she's surly and nasty and doesn't really understand herself very much. But she, she has to figure out what she's loyal to. Is she loyal to this place that she doesn't trust very much but it's the only safe place she knows? Uh, is she going to take advantage of it when it's at its weakest? Um, or is she going to stand up and try and do something to help it and to recover what it should be? And in the best interests of all uh, Sandman comics, this is all told through hopefully very beautifully crafted, self-contained vignette stories, which are often about things which don't seem at all uh, immediately relevant until you realize that they're sort of progressing the broader tapestry bit by bit. Uh, And we're going to see some some sort of uh, splendid old... DC properties, you haven't seen the light of day in decades, making making their appearance, and we're going to see a lot of some really amazing visuals, which I've, I've just been writing it this week, which is why I'm still a bit full of this stuff. Um, but on the whole, it's yeah, it's literary, it's 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 sort of romantic horror, I guess yeah. is how I would describe it. It's it's about things that are heartbroken, trying to repair their hearts and their minds while. Panicking that the world seems more broken than anything else, and
0: it's it's kind of beautiful. In terms of because we were talking about how Vertigo, it's it's it seems it's in a term of transition. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kindest way to put it. How far is it being planned ahead? I mean, because the one thing about well, there's two things I want to cover. Number one is the way that Neil Gaiman wrote that first run of Summer. There are some elements in there where, where nothing really kind of happens, but you are loving. Being in the company of these yep. characters nowadays, in 2018, when stories are told like that, you are taking a lot of risk. Yep. In that, is that happening in this book? Is there are there moments where there's a lot of story where it's just taking a long breath? I mean, it's a, it's a, a very astute
1: question. Um, Something Neil spoke to us about quite a lot when we met with him was that he felt it took him quite a while to sort of find the voice. Because well, he was also finding his own voice yeah. as well at that point. And so if you, if you read the first six issues of it, I mean, it's kind of a treasure, a treasure hunt. You know? Dream has to get three things back, and he proceeds to get three things back. And that's about as close as that whole run ever gets to a contiguous, narratively direct journey yeah. Uh, in the sense that it is linear there is a clearly defined goal there's no mucking around no sort of strange interludes actually that's not true there are <laughs> a couple in a the first, but, it, but <laughs> that increasingly as the, as the series progresses that becomes the thing it becomes yeah. a series of beautiful interludes Which accidentally tell the main story. I'm coming up
0: with full taglines for every single one of your stories. Kind of what I do. A bunch of beautiful interludes. I I should have been an advertising executive.
1: (laughs) I'd be very famous and rich by now. But um, that's what he did. Did? (laughs) Dud. Having just said, I'm so articulate. That's what he did. Uh, That's what he did, and um, and it's amazing. Now, in today's world, you're absolutely right. Especially coming out of the barrel, you don't necessarily have the trust <laughs> or the wiggle room or the self-confidence to take that tack immediately now i have to say neil was an absolute godsend and when we the four of us sat down in this room and neil arrives and we've all been spending weeks going okay we're going to do this and we're Is all the first time you
0: met him by the way yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so <sort of. laughs> sort of.
1: i met him briefly long ago But was there not... a lot of fun
0: building going on <laughs> He's not... He's 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 just not like that. He's sort
1: of... I mean, this will sound like another name drop, but I'm very lucky in that I've hung out with all my heroes. I'm very friendly with Garth, I've hung out a lot with Alan, now I've met Neil. And they are all, in very different ways, exceptionally good at not letting that happen. Whether because, in Neil's case, he's just so infectiously calm you, you just don't geek out. You're just like, oh, I feel so relaxed. Can we talk now? <laughs> and I'm sure I come across as a blethering, obnoxious idiot because I like to fill space. And he's he's all about the pregnant pause, and and that's very inspiring. So back to the meeting. Yeah. So. Uh, he said, um, don't worry. Just take your time. Find your voice. Don't feel like you need to be in a rush to get anywhere. And he. He's all about having, he's, you know, he's, he's been doing this for a long time. He knows that on a long enough timeline, the, the sales bump that you get from issue one is not the big thing. The, the sales bump you get from a crossover is not the big thing. It's the fact that these books will sit on a shelf for 30 years, and as long as they're fucking brilliant books, they'll keep selling. Yeah. So don't be in a rush. Just make it wonderful and make it beautiful. I can hear myself doing his voice while I say those <laughs> I was words. about to say. Don't be in a rush. <laughs> So, yeah, as I said before, he gave us permission to do a lot of things that we hadn't really realized we wanted to do. Now, does that mean that the first six issues of The Dreaming are unfocused and not really going anywhere? No, because I'm I'm somebody who likes to have stories with endings. But I have moved quite dramatically away from thinking in terms of it's a movie, where all the threads are going in the right direction and this thing corresponds to this and this one juxtaposes with that and here's where these threads collide, uh, to... I know where it starts, and I know some things that have to happen along the way. And here's a character who I want to give a whole issue to to tell their story, and here's a, a funny little romance that I want to give a whole issue to to tell their story. And as long as those beats are being delivered in exciting, interesting mm-hmm. ways along the way, you can do that, and that's
0: comics. Well, with Neil Gaiman summer, because he was starting to learn how to do comics at the end of the day with this book. Yep, he had, he knew how to start, and he knew, like you say, there's stuff to do. But it he, wasn't. He, uh, I think it was Shelley that's mentioned this he didn't know how to finish it right okay and he learned how to do that with this book yep but in doing that he created then this tone and this method of storytelling with the salmon which people have resonated with yeah so you're kind of replicating that because like you say you are somebody that knows or likes to know where a story sure. is this going to feel open-ended yeah i think so well it's tr- funny, you've just
1: sent me right about I So I used to <laughs> write X Men Legacy, and uh, my editor, a guy called Daniel Ketchum, who I think is a, a splendid editor, with the mo- he wasn't being rude about this, he was being utterly affectionate, but he used to use the word Claremonting as a verb. Just Claremont some stuff. And by which he means you may have some half formed ideas of stuff that's going to happen in the future. It doesn't have to feel like it's happening within this story. It's probably, the, you know, you think in terms of sequels. The controlling idea keeps changing. You don't just keep endlessly regurgitating story. You, you write an end and then you start again. And you may have an idea of, oh, it's interesting to do something with that character in that sequel, and then the sequel after that might be interesting to do something with this character. And so here and now, when you're writing the first bit, claremont some of that stuff you know it's it's the bit where cyclops is running down the corridor oh i don't remember seeing that door there but no time to stop and look through it It keeps running and then three issues later what's in the door and it's a whole story and that's claremonting So there's a bit of that so it should all feel for instance i can tell you that i know exactly what happens with crystal clarity up until issue 12 and i can tell you that when we reach issue 12 there's no sensible way that people won't want to know what happens next. Fair enough. So it, it's not open-ended in the sense that I don't know where it's going, but it is open-ended in the sense that uh, I am laying enough threads that I will always be able to deliver amazing and satisfying
0: storylines. That sounds mm. fine. Considering that we were intending to talk for 15 minutes. <laughs> we had no idea. And the idea was that we were going to... Uh, I had a start. I had some stuff that I wanted to talk about, the way, right, right, right. but wasn't too sure where we were going to end up. This interview has been a complete Claremont. Yay! I so have, have uh, Claremonted the hell out of We have Claremonted right? yeah. the hell out of this interview, and I have no problem with that. Very good. Thank you very oh, much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>